You're listening to The New Paris. I'm your host, Lindsay Tremuda. Much like fashion, Paris is a global reference for design. There are the iconic interiors one might imagine when thinking of Paris, of course, but then there are more sceny or concepty places that seem to have big design firms and big investors behind them. In the last eight years or so, it feels like every new spot has a resident interior designer or architect or a theme that they're going for. In some ways, it feels a little bit more like London with their developed restaurant groups and sharp designs. What might explain this proliferation of a more global, less local style in restaurants and hotels? Who have been some of the tastemakers over the years? And what defines the kind of look and feel we're seeing now? To get to the bottom of it, I chat with Tala Garagaslu, an interior architect who trained with and worked for Frank Gehry, has worked for Soho House, India Madavi, The Hoxton, and with her design collective, Atelier Remo, designed Blue Bao and Bao Express, two restaurants from the group Bao family. Let's see what she has to say. Tala, welcome to the show. Thank you. You and I met through your work. You are an architect, a designer. You, you know, worked on this, well, several very big projects, but in the last year, one of the projects that uh, finally was unveiled was a specific restaurant in the Bao family group. So it's called Bleu Bao. And I was so pleased to get to know who was behind the decor because it is quite detailed. It is quite evocative of a certain time and a certain sense of place. Um, and then to realize that your background actually is 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 so unique it covers so many different places and and that's where actually where i'd like to start i mean you 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 you're french you're iranian you're american you're you you've you've been all over so what was your training how did how did you become tala the architect who works both with atelier remo which is your 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 what do we call this a sort of a cooperative almost a joint venture A collective, that's the word, that's the word. Um, but you've also, you know, worked uh, with Soho House directly and you've worked for others. So kind of how do we get to that point? Well, thank you so much, Lindsay, for inviting me. I mean, uh, it was fantastic. Oh, I felt very lucky to um, have such a wonderful read on our project Le Bao from you, especially coming out of a time like like the pandemic where um, we felt, for one, very grateful to have clients like the Bao family, Celine Chung and Billy Pham, who were very uh, daring clients to really push through in a difficult time like this on restaurant projects. And my amazing partner, Virginie de Graveron, with whom we worked together on the project. Um, as you mentioned, it's a collective. So we started off as like four of us, but depending on the projects, it was either two, three or four of us, the other two being Chloé Negre and Karine Chahine. Uh And you might wonder... You know, I'll try, I'm, I'm kind of a master of digression. So I'll try to keep it fairly short and sweet, uh, for the purpose of the podcast. But it's quite interesting. How did I end up sort of, um, it felt very lucky to have a small restaurant, but with quite a, what I, we all think as quite a distinctive design ending up on in prestigious publication like T magazine and Bao Express ended up in design and a lot of coverage and has as much to do with a client as I hope. Um, our design in many ways. Um, so that's where I'd start. So thank you, Lindsay, among all the people who really um, appreciated what we were trying to do at Bao, which was kind of 
tried to tell a different story in a space uh, about a certain cuisine, a certain kind of space, a certain kind of different restaurant-going experience in Paris. Um, so I think that was all that was all at work in sort of I think the response we got with that first restaurant. But before this, and before you know, you were you were designing spaces. You studied architecture in the U.S., correct? Yeah. So I think that's an interesting thing because in some ways, um, Bleubau wasn't the only coming home project. But yeah, as you mentioned, it, it, it's sort of it's an interesting. I'll try to keep it brief. So as you mentioned, I'm uh, my family's Iranian. I grew up in Paris, uh, but completely unexpected for someone who grew up in going completely French schooling. Because my parents had been educated in the U.S., unlike, you know, I did a completely, I did a French baccalaureate, not an IB or anything else. I did a bac français in a very French lycée. Um, and I thought I would do what's called in France in class prépa, studying classics or literature. But, you know, my parents who had studied in the U.S. and really believed in that liberal arts college experience where you kind of explore everything that might interest you in life. Um, sometime between, uh, in France, what's première and terminale, junior and senior year of high school, we're like, well, you know, among all your higher education applications, well, why not try to apply to, to the U.S. as well? And that's how kind of, uh, unexpectedly I ended up studying in the U.S. And I think if I had not ended up in the U.S. where suddenly you end up, which is very unusual for the French mindset, uh, you end up, you know, your freshman year, your first year out of high school being able to study anything you could ever want, which you're very familiar with, but I think for French listeners might, is always this perpetual source of um, amazement, being like, mais c'est quoi ta spécialité? C'est quoi ta majeure? It's sort of like, but what, you know, you're like, no, you just show up, you've been, um, you show up there on your merit. And, um, you know, my first year, actually, I, I studied things that I thought I liked, like literature and art history. And it was only actually second year into it that Actually, sort of accidentally, I, I ended up studying architecture. There was an intro to architecture class with an incredibly charismatic professor talking about an incredibly iconic piece of architecture that was right there on campus by a famous architect I had never heard of. So that's how I actually majored and decided only second year, at the end of my second year, to major in architecture. But even compared to French idea of like, you know, when you come out of your back, and you say you go in France, you either do a class prépa or even you apply straight off to go to école d'architecture or you even do a, a prépa d'art to go into um, école d'architecture d'intérieur, like Camondo or Penningen. Uh, even then, what my was my, in the U.S., is called a BA, a Bachelor of Arts in Architecture, is, was a very broad combination of studio work, design work, drawing, theory, this kind of pretty heady mix of all sorts of things. So even then, it sort of like was a pretty strange mix for the French uh, mindset. But, you know, I really liked architecture with a big A, big buildings. Um, but I missed France, being the only one among my French high school friends who had not studied in France. Uh, all the friends I had ever grown up with were all still in Paris, around Paris. And, and so as much as I absolutely love my college years, um, you know, I felt the need to come back and I came and I did a few stage for architecture firms in Paris. But suddenly I, there was a very strange disconnect with the sort of big architect or, you know, these were small architecture firms doing a lot of big competitions for social housing 
and kind of the crazy range of um, themes and issues I was discussing with when I was back in the U.S., where we worked at different scales. We worked on furniture. We worked on interiors. We worked on bigger buildings. We talked about master plans. Granted, I was a clueless undergraduate, the way that only the U.S. gives you the confidence about talking all those different things when you're a clueless 20-year-old. Um you know, really felt ill-fitting. And so first I moved on to London, which that felt like maybe it was just luck. I happened to end up interning in a firm where actually um, they sort of understood where what my U.S. education was about. And they were a bit more focused on helping me train in the basic everyday skills, but appreciate the fact that I liked talking about bigger ideas as well. Uh, compared to, I guess, more the guild model that the Fr- French sometimes like to, you know. Uh, and what does that what does that entail exactly? The French model would be that you're not really, it, it's too niche, or it's not dealing with actual issues that you would need to think about when building or. I guess the thing is, like, I think uh, the firms that you know, in in terms of the U.S. in. I mean, it's a very rarefied environment I was in. Uh, the professors who combined sort of teaching, writing, research, and um, and practice, and pro- commercial practice, were people who still dealt with big ideas. Whereas in France, in the architecture with the big A, in the building world, um, architecture meant a lot of like concours, uh, competitions. So that's why you end up doing a lot of late nights, doing purely execution. Uh, but there was like this funny hierarchy between sort of like doing building architecture versus interiors. And so anyway, I, I went back to grad school in the U.S. because that felt more comfortable. But coming out of grad school, I realized um, I had a family who was always interested in the arts, in art history. And I felt sort of, you know, a lot of things felt a bit too empty if you only talked about the buildings. Um, I did straight out of grad school, spend two years working for an amazing architect, working for Frank Gehry, but went for personal reasons it was time to move to Paris uh, for a number of personal reasons. Um, I thought, okay, this time around, instead of just applying to the building architecture from the, the agence d'architecture that might have big names, let's look at the names that might be better known in Paris for architecture d'intérieur. And even though, especially as a young woman, there might be sort of a hierarchy, for me, the firms that did architecture d'intérieur, which you know, that's why I like to use the term versus interior design in English. You know, it's really interior architecture. I didn't realize actually how big the gap was uh, in training versus, you know, in U.S. there's very much, you know, you you go to architecture school, you talk about buildings, you might talk about, as I mentioned, these different skills, you might do some exercises in furniture design, and then you have like interior design slash you know, closer to decoration. So, you know, I don't mean It's more to like, like interior styling. Interior styling, right, exactly. Right. Whereas it's only when I joined India Madhavi's office that I realized in France how different the training was when you go to a place like Peningen or Camondo, there was still this great tradition of interior architecture. And that's when I realized that was a big, um, I mean, I knew going into, I'd, I'd interviewed a few different firms. Another one was like Bruno Moinard. You know, in France, I saw that the people who got the best press and who were also doing the most interesting work with local craftsmen. I was really interested in beautiful things or beautifully crafted things. That was an interest of mine. Um, were those kinds of interior firms versus spending months and months, a lot of late nights on a competition for 
a huge master plan where it might still take you, you might even win the master plan or be like, I don't know, you know, one of the top three. But until that got built, that felt very frustrating. And so having been already in a large scale architecture firms, I'd also interned at um, various architect, large scale architecture firms. Like I was at Renzo Piano before being at Gary for summer, you know, spending years and years before even seeing something built felt very frustrating. So those those interior architecture firms felt like the right place to work with fantastic craftsmen who really created interior architecture. And in practice, that's exactly what happened. Uh, I realized that actually um, my peers, my friends, my colleagues in the in at the firm were people who really knew how to detail things in ways that I had never been trained in. Here I was with this sort of my this great American education I loved and these big name <laughs> firms. And suddenly I was like, okay, how do you really, really draw a beautiful door? How do you really uh, understand? How do you do a drawing that's both beautiful and that communicates well to a joinery, a menuisier, uh, something that will be uh, have interesting proportions to it, that will be visually striking, but that will be also pleasant to the use. And I think that was a huge reality check for me uh, that, you know, in France, there is this still this tradition uh, when you go to these uh, écoles d'architecture d'intérieur, uh, some of them call this tradition of still like of ensemblier, where, you know, you kind of like do, you really train uh, doing an ensemble, doing a whole. When you're training to really design a chair and you're really designing that armchair, you've really thought about what those profiles would look like. And then, you know, by the time you're designing a door and by the time you're designing a room, you really have a sense of that scale of how you've gone from like, you know, the armrest to the door handle, to the door, to the entire room. Well, it's part of a, it's part of a story as well that you're trying mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, un unfold through a room and through the, the pieces. And I've, I almost wonder if the U S is as good at doing this sort of thing. Obviously, there are huge, big name interior architects in the US, but it, it does seem like it's a different approach, a different creative and mental approach. And and to me, it feels very Italian and French to to go into this level of detail. I don't know, no, maybe no, I'm absolutely. off the mark, but it seems like a different no, no, absolutely. emphasis on story. It's not even story, just really understanding that scale. I realized that in the US, um, we had spent a lot of time coming up with big master plans or with really designing one object. But in between, you know, you talked in theoretical terms about uh, neoclassical architecture or Beaux-Arts or these kinds of things, but you had never really spent time what it means to draw, uh, you know, a door frame. And, you know, I think... You know, I think in some places, you know, you assume you do that once you're in professional practice. But I think, you know, I might be totally wrong, but what I felt is among my my colleagues who had spent time at places like Camondo, they really, you do actually study that. Or you, you know, maybe you do it on your own time, but you actually understand that like, you know, like those kind of very art deco, like uh, profiles that you see that you might see on a door frame, that the way it expresses itself on a fork or on a chair, all those things are related. So it's really about, even before you get to the storytelling, really understanding the uh, 
the physical impact of those kinds of things. And so that to me was really interesting to really stop and really consider those kinds of details. Uh, because you don't, it's just that you don't have time. I mean, I think especially maybe it might have been due to a certain era. Like I feel, uh, when I was in the US in the early 2000s, I mean, you have the big name architects, you know, you know, I did, I, I worked at Frank Gehry's who has a very specific methodology, but you know, in New York, famous ones would be like people like Richard Meyer. But on the other hand, in tears, you had the W hotels and it's really about image making. And so you realize suddenly in France, there were, there has been still this uninterrupted tradition of really detailing things. Because for one thing, I guess you're also, you know, it's rare not to work with the historic fabric of the city, of the place. So even if you're doing, whenever you're doing a pure, quote unquote, pure white box, I mean, whatever pure might mean, but a sort of a very radical white box, uh, that's... Uh, a very willful move in itself. Whereas in, in the US, depending on where you are in the US, if you're in New York or you're in LA, you know, in LA, you might actually be in a, you know, completely flat landscape. So putting a, just a box in the field is a pretty straightforward thing. Whereas in Paris, if you're going to do just a white box, it actually really has an impact on its surrounding, uh, on its surrounding, on its environment. Well, and you need all the approvals from historic, you know, entities and whatnot. You have all these other elements to to take into account. I wanted to ask you, Absolutely. because you just mentioned something I found so interesting, which was image making. And when you and I first met, I the first thing I was wondering was, was how would you describe the type of restaurants and, and, and spaces and hotels we're seeing today? Mostly, mostly restaurants, because obviously we were talking about Blue Bao. And I... And when I emailed you to set up this interview, yeah. I don't know if I think I put this in the email that um, there was uh, a fashion journalist whose work I love. Her name is Lauren Sherman, and she absolutely deserves the credit for being the catalyst for this thinking. Um, she wrote in a newsletter that when she was in L.A., uh, or she lives in LA, but what she's struck by is when she goes into a space and she says it just reeks of private equity. So like just re just sort of like reeks <laughs> of a concept. Like there's a lot of money behind it and it's a concept and maybe these people came out of business school and that's sort of what we're <laughs> what I think that plus the image making that you described of like the W hotels of of New York from, you know, ages ago feels like that finally made its way to Paris. It, it, you know, and I know you 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 probably you I mean you were here during sort of the the era of you know, cost. Uh, there were places when I first moved here, like Buddha Bar. Yeah, so but, it's, it's, but what was what was that? What was that shift from then to now, where it seems like there is more of an image making, branded aesthetic that we're seeing. I mean, I guess it's interesting. I don't know how far back um, we want to go, but as you said, it's interesting because again. For me, as a teenager growing up in Paris, in terms of, I guess, what mentally was my divide between interiors versus architecture you know, buildings, um, it was this funny thing where every once in a while you might have, like, you know, especially, I mean, uh, you know, in the post-Mitterrand years, you know, Paris had at least a few iconic pieces of architecture, like the Opéra, with La Défense, etc. But I felt the 90s, what the really iconic places in Paris, late 90s, as you mentioned, were places like the Coast, the Buddha Bar, where so much of it was about these, like, these really luscious, rich interiors. 
And to be fair, later on, um, once I was at India Madhavi, I got to meet someone, for example, like uh, Thierry Cost, and I have huge amount of respect and admiration for what they brought on the scene and the audacity. But it's true that at times, you know, as uh, someone who's not versed into that field at all when I was younger, uh, it was kind of hard to understand what Jacques Garcia was really doing. But I still think the fact that a place like Hotel Coste all these years later is still so iconic for Paris really says something about what uh, both Parisians and an international clientele still, what remnants of what uh, 19th century empire furniture style in a contemporary uh, with a contemporary twist might feel or might want to be like. So yeah, there, so there's this funny thing in Paris where like I feel the 90s were dominated by things like uh, what the in the restaurant scene, the Coste and Buddha Bar was doing. And so, for example, a super iconic interior designer like Christian Lieck was all about super minimal design. But I feel by the er, by the 2000s uh, that, you know, that had kind of worn off. And so it took a bit of time from my opinion, in terms of for the restaurant scene to really respond. And I feel like that's where there was, I don't know if it was a return, but I could, but just from personal experience, uh, being very passionate about food myself, I feel we were, a lot of us were really felt more connected to places that felt very authentic, like, you know, going to Stéphane Jégo's La Mijon. Uh, and a bit later then, it was interesting to see that when, um, Bertrand Grebeau and Septim came on the scene. Because, yeah, I feel like La Mijon and Stéphane Jégo, that was like the first place where it's like, okay, let's go back to really amazing seasonal food. Who cares about the decor? That's what the French know how to do best. This is what we're really going to come for. And so it was interesting to see with uh, Greg Marchand at Frenchie, um, Grebeau at Septim, to suddenly see, okay, that was kind of, Felt ref- that felt refreshing because it's like, okay, let's go for the seasonal menu. Let's go for that interesting. People are coming for the food, but let's have a bit of that industrial slick touch to still give it something a little slicker than the fouan. You know, this is just sort of like the coin de quartier that's, that we found as is. So you could see the emergence of that. And so that was an interesting thing. Um, and the influence of sort of these young chefs who either had actually a bit of a design taste of their own or traveled abroad and brought that to, Par- to Paris around 2010s. Could that be part of so the that economy was re- shifting too? Because right around 2008, you know, we had the financial crash. And while there were all these chefs who opened their own places, I'm sure they didn't have the budgets that, you know, to do these sort of elaborate designs. Like, do, do you think that that plays a role in influencing the kind of design we started to see? I'm not sure, because I think it's also, who knows? I mean, I can't say specifically, because that's what I'm saying. It, it still was interesting that someone, for example, like Greg Marchand, who had spent enough time in London, New York, still cared about putting a little bit of a design touch. You know, it, it, it's still, you know, when Frenchie opened, uh, you know, he didn't go all out, but it had an identity as a space. To me, it didn't feel like a copycat Brooklyn space, but it sort of had an, at all. But, um, for Paris, it felt different, you know, it had a bit of, a bit more of that slightly raw space, uh, with an identity of his own. So, yeah, I'm not sure exactly. I can't remember right now in terms of the timeline where that 
fit with the financial crisis. I think, it, you know, it might have been a fact of, you know, a few individual chefs who had sort of, I can't remember if that's when and when exactly he actually opened the first Frenchie and then the Baravin, for example, when Septim opened. But I think it was a sign of sort of interesting young French chefs that had been abroad, had seen these other trends in terms of interiors design, doing something slicker, having a fun playlist, creating an atmosphere, you know, not going just straight up for the food. But not bringing that to Yeah, not Sini, exactly. But not Sini, but still going for something that wasn't quite as, you know, um, terroir. That wasn't so much about terroir. Giving a bit of, still giving it a bit of young, fun vibe. You know, I think for me, actually, I moved back from LA and, you know, going to Frenchy Barava, I remember it was like, okay, like, I don't want to go out to a nightclub, but going to Fr- Frenchy Barava was like, there's a fun playlist, there's a great sommelier, there's a great team, I have some great bites. This is something I can only get in Paris, but still evokes enough of what I was missing about New York and LA uh, while being very Parisian. And so that was really interesting. And I think that was the beginning of a a shift in terms of what we've seen in the last decade on the restaurant scene, which is then uh, a whole set of, I mean, I think it's interesting to see, as you're saying, you mentioned about um, different sort of like very financier backed, um, you know, I don't want to <laughs> name names, but I just think because I, I do admire the incredible uh, success, like, you know, a group like Big Mama that really went for concept that really, you know, said, okay, let's create a concept and really went for a certain kind of design and went out for it. So I do have a lot of huge amount of respect for what they've done, but it's interesting that actually in their case, I think you can actually draw some of the inspirations with what hap- what was happening actually in, L- in London. I was just going to say, it feels like, I remember before Big Mama opened, I had been to Deschum in mm. London. Uh, which everyone seems to love, um, but not even just Deschum. I mean, there were countless other restaurants that yeah. had a very specific sort of thematic decor, and it was pushed as far as possible, yeah. you know, to the to the nth element. And I hadn't really felt that, aside from maybe a couple of restaurants, like you know, in a group, sort of like uh, Monsieur Monsieur Bleu or Giraffe, these kinds of places. That well, Giraffe is more more recent, but you know that that group where it was very much we care about an atmosphere and an aesthetic more than the food. The food will be fine; it'll be expensive, but like we're really here to give you a vibe. And Big Mama Group came and sort of disrupted everything. I think, but clearly the inspirations came from other places. Yeah, I mean it's interesting you mentioned uh, Monsieur Bleu and Giraffe because. That to me was interesting because uh, the group Paris Society uh, started by, created by Laurent de Gourcuff in some ways kind of reinvented that cost model of sort of creating a very slick, very beautiful space for beautiful people with a menu where you had a lot of classics. It wasn't a menu that was meant to really challenge you, but unlike, you know, it was, it was still a pretty different menu from, um, uh, from what you had the cost. And what's interesting compared to the cost where it sort of felt whether you, all the different cost restaurants had the same menu. This one, Monsieur Bleu had sort of like a sort of like, you know, French classic. Gir- Giraffe was very focused on seafood. Lulu, Lulu was very focused on Italian. But I did, I do appreciate the fact that, you know, um, that, that one designer architect, Joseph Durand, and they really, 
let him every time do these very, very bespoken tears. And so that's where, to me, it was interesting because those felt very French in a very different way that what Jacques Garcia had done at Hotel Cost because these really super detailed, super bespoke spaces at Monsieur Bleu, uh, you had behind the Palais Tokyo space that had been abandoned for so long and you had this, you know, these amazing ceiling heights and, you know, Giraffe, you have this amazing view on the Eiffel Tower with this, you know, this just quite, you know, honestly, really beautiful and beautifully detailed space. So it's really, or like Lulu, you have this view on the Palais des Tuileries. So whatever you might say, it was sort of like, you know, um, you really want to be in that space because it really looks great. Granted, there might be sort of, especially in the early days when it opened, that very senior and all that. So it might not be the, you know, cozy, comfortable place that places like, you know, Frenchy offered, but it was, it was a very different pro- proposition. And so I think Big Mama was really looking, uh, funny enough, Big Mama came on the scene. That's when I actually moved from Paris to London for personal reasons. Um, and I joined, uh, So House as a group had just, um, sort of moved on to having their interior, their, all their design done in house. And actually interesting, the trend that you see at Big Mama was really started by an interior design firm in London called Martin Brudniski. So he's the one who used to be, uh, the firm that was contracted by So House. A number of designers from that firm or other people like me joined in-house and we started trying to create sort of a more signature look in-house. And so what's interesting actually, yeah, I talked about U.S. where I came from a U.S. upbringing with a very sort of like, you know, especially in higher education, there was sort of like big ideas or big, big master plans versus France, huge detail in craftsmanship and a certain kind of training as well. England actually was a completely different approach where there was that, you know, quite free attitude to mix and match. You know, you sort of take a bunch of vintage furniture, mix it with a bunch of sort of, you do have the fantastic craftsmanship in England, but it was interesting because everything was very reliant on like mood boards and past images and trying trying to create this mix to create an image, uh, which was funny because compared to Paris where you really start with the details and you try to really create an aesthetic vocabulary, which, you know, you can really see uh, on projects like Joseph Durand, the color, the kind of like the the aesthetic language is really uh, created for each space. When I arrived at Soho House, it was really interesting where actually, uh, you know, there was this interesting where, you know, space planning was really important. You know, I was working in-house for a hotel restaurant operator, but there was that quite English attitude of like, well, you know, then you kind of deal with a mix of loose furniture. And yes, sure, if you need it, you might do a few bespoke designs here and there, but you kind of do this perpetual mix and match, uh, which you can, you know, in some ways you can see also in English fashion versus like French with the couture, the French really obsessed over the details. So that was a really interesting education in, of, in and of itself. And so it was very funny since it was the early days of the in-house team. I was in the early days, I was into a team of one on all the public spaces for the Hoxton Hotel in Paris. And it was only two years in that we actually grew to a team of four of us with three other people who joined me. But in the early days when we're sort of doing the concept, it was just basically me on uh, this new joint venture, which was this Hoxton Hotel in Paris. As you said, we're coming back to something that was quite focused on the image. A spectacular. But this was, this was a, 
within the Soho House. So it was group? a joint venture. It was a joint venture okay. where um, Soho House Group was going to design and operate the public spaces, and Hoxton was going to own the building, the real estate, and was designing the rooms. So um, that joint venture had already uh, been quite su- successful on two Hoxtons in London, uh, Holborn and the original Hoxton Square one. And so this was, and there was the one that was about to launch, which was Hoxton Amsterdam, and this was their second international one, Hoxton Paris. Uh, but yeah, for Paris, it was an interesting proposition because there wasn't um, – a super tight, clear image, uh, the way I had been used to when I was at India Madhavi or the way that Joseph Diran had done with something like Monsieur Bleu. Um, and yeah, Big Mama, it was early days of a concept like Big Mama, very early days. So yeah, the Hoxton, I think a lot of it was about trying to work out, trying to find a happy middle ground between how we were going to use the space and what was going to be the vibe for it, basically finding kind of like. But what's incredible about what you did, though, and part of that has to do with this, the building itself, which is historic, yeah. you know, you can tell. Um, I mean, just walking into it, you know, you're not just anywhere. So it, it feels at once Parisian, but yeah. also super contemporary in a way that Paris hadn't really seen a lot of. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, there are other boutique properties, but this felt grand in some ways and, and intimate in others. And I thought that was uh, a, ra- a balance that I had not yet seen really in Paris. Yeah, I mean, I really, I think you really put the finger on it. I mean, it's true that uh, I don't know how much has it that the only uh, Parisian on the Soho's team was me working on it. So maybe, uh, maybe, I don't know, it's impossible to tell. It, it, I mean, it's true that the executive team on the ground was very French and we had a number of elements that were listed. We had to work with the existing architecture so it's true that compared to, but at the same time, that was a very so house. Uh, that's what I really enjoyed about my time at so house. That was a very so house way of working, which is that there was never a set manual for any specific location. It was really every time we were starting with a new location, it was trying to say, okay, what do people love about, you know, I'm saying in the early days of Hoxton concept or so house, it's like, People love to have great hangout spaces with a great specialty coffee. So we knew, for example, that was a program element, even though that's a pretty fuzzy one. Or we know that people like sort of a a brasserie corner, but not something too formal either. So, you know, so there were these kind of general concepts, but that were not, um, that could be massaged in different ways. So, uh, so that's where, you know, it, it's funny because when it first opened, for example, I had friends who had booked for the hotel and we were upset that uh, the entrance lobby, you, di- you didn't have a check-in desk in the entrance. Um, and so it's funny, like a few friends were really upset at me. We're like, oh, but that's like terrible. That was like the worst check-in experience because I had to walk through a whole courtyard of all these people laptoping with their lattes in hand. And, but that, for example, was an interesting story of dealing with building regulations, um, because, uh, that was an interesting problem where in general, um, because the, the building site, since we had two buildings and the building was very deep, we really had to be mindful of escape routes and uh, the occupancy for each of those spaces. So we thought, okay, our occupancy is fairly limited in that first space, 
but as a concept, we don't want if I forget I, by now it's it's a long time now. I, it's probably six seven years ago. Having you know yeah. just the that that entryway in my my head right now, you would lose a lot of space if you were trying to do more than one yeah. thing in there, right? So if you tried to put the reception desk there and make it a welcome coffee hangout area, you'd have too many people. Yeah. So I see what you mean where you you're rapidly going to reach occupancy occupancy of that space or sort of your quota yeah so we could do we could do only one or the other and at some point it had to be a very decisive thing of like if you could do only one thing so the space was too big to just do a reception desk because the the occupancy but the occupancy was fairly low for a coffee station so it was somewhere that funny in between where it was sort of really really had to make a hard decision being like okay it's going to feel really empty if you just have a reception desk. It might feel a bit too busy if it's a coffee station, but there's sort of like, there's no, there's not going to be a perfect in between anyway. And so that's where we decide, okay. But you know, I think, you know, I don't know that if it's, if it's a talking point, I'm sure there have been clients or, or, or guests who have asked, you know, why is the reception all the way back here? But like, I think that's where you could maybe sort of get people a little bit more at ease with the the entrance process, you know, especially if they have a lot of luggage, which, you know, thinking of Americans, they always do, um, is to say, well, you know what, actually, it's quite, his, you know, it's for historic reasons, or, you know, to go into sort of the complexities of working with an old space, which I'm not sure that they take the time to do that. But I feel like people might be more uh, le- less irritated by that that element if they knew that actually, like, look, we're working in a really old city. There are a lot of challenges to to navigate. I mean, yeah. It, at the end of the day, it's a younger brand. Uh, I think the in that entrance for people who know the entrance to that Hoxton Hotel, there's this uh, spiral staircase, 19th century. Sp- that was one of the only listed pieces we could we we could place it anywhere in the building. Uh, in the two buildings, we could la- place it anywhere in the complex, but it had to be kept as one piece. And so it felt a shame to place, you know, that felt like the best place, as you said, you really give a feeling of you're, you're entering part of old Paris, you're in the middle of the Sentier, you're entering part of old Paris. But yeah, as I, as you mentioned, it's true that international friends who thought they were going to check into a convenient hotel, even if they didn't have a huge amount of luggage, since we made a point of actually Having cobblestones, uh, even in that first, even even though there was a glazed roof, we wanted to keep that continuity because it used to be part of the you know the continuity of the porte cochere. And even though we turned it into an interior space, we really wanted to keep the cobblestones to keep that character. So yes, there will be a category of user that will still and friends who said, oh, you know, I hated dragging my my suitcase across um, that hallway in that courtyard, but. I think that was, um, but they're prepared to stay in Airbnbs and go yeah. up six flights of stairs and not have air conditioning, whatever. I mean, <laughs> to each their own, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think that's where in actually that courtyard and that entrance is still what attracted the neighborhood, which that was the finding Absolute. that right balance between being a place where the neighborhood would want to walk in and get together and not just have hotel guests and, and make it completely different from a very formal. You know, for Paris, that is so famous for its super luxury hotels like the Crillon, the Ritz, the Plaza. Having that kind of, I guess I would say almost like more messy, open lobby was actually very unusual at the time. Yeah, I've I've spent n- numerous hours in that 
in those common areas, hanging out, working, escaping the heat wave at one point, exactly. you know, a few years ago, right? So, so I think there is a real value to that. Now, I'm before we go, I really want to ask you, um, sort of, you know, there's been a slew of new designers and also some big designers who have worked on some some hotels. And this city is a is it's just sort of the city of hotels. I feel like you know every year, I think surely we've hit our our max in terms of hotels, and yet here we are again, another season where we're seeing. Uh, a whole host of new boutique properties, boutique or, you know, sort of mid, mid-size, um, quite high-end that are opening between now and June. Um, and I'm sure there are others after that. Who who do you think um, is doing interesting things and who maybe, you know, is creating spaces that might feel dated? I mean, if you don't want to answer that, I already have my own <laughs> thoughts, <laughs> thoughts on it. Um, but... You know, I'm just curious who do you think is like doing a, a really stellar job at creating this sense of place in addition to yourself? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, yeah, on the data, maybe on hotels, you might have opinions. of. I think it Paris is interesting because, as you mentioned, yes, there are, you know, uh, you know, groups with uh, specific specific financing who can who try to keep on doing a certain type of concept. But in general, Paris, because of building regulations, listings, et cetera, it's actually not that easy to do much larger concepts and, um, you know, city planning, urban planning regulations. So that's why I think you end up seeing a lot of small to mid-size, higher-end, uh, both hotel, restaurant, projects, which is quite interesting because, and so I think that's what's interesting we've seen in the last decade, because what we've seen in the last decade is, I think a lot of them have seen that design, uh, really tapping into that, you know, so that generation of really well-trained designers who can do really beautiful interiors, quite impeccable interiors has been the one way to distinguish themselves. So it's interesting that you know, the phenomenon I was describing, you know, we started with sort of more raw spaces led by chefs, but it's interesting that on the cocktail scene, there were groups like Experimental, who then opened some place like Hotel Bachaumont. But then on the other hand, uh, you had people like Adrien Glo again, who's sort of uh, really went for smaller existing hotels, but really gave them a proper refresh in neighborhoods that uh, used to be kind of overlooked. Um, you know, like the ninth or the tenth, or you know, now even the quinzième. So that's my friend and occasional collaborator, Chloé, Chloé Negre, who did two, two of those for Adrien, which was Hotel Bienvenue and now Hotel Beauregard. You really oh, doing yeah, things, excellent, yeah, yeah, and Hotel Beauregard, trying to give them a different twist of really sort of. So Adrien, I think, is a really interesting hotel entrepreneur from that point of view. Uh, like, uh, Hotel des Deux Gares, which he did, but then with brought in, uh, talk about that British influence, actually, which the French might not want to necessarily talk openly about, but he brought Luke Edward Hall, who's sort of very, um, famous signature in, in the UK. But interesting, what I found out with, at Les Deux Gares is interesting is the restaurant concept, it's sort of the restaurant is very much led by the chefs, uh, where I think it's- And more, popular among locals. Exactly. With a more daring menu, very seasonal menu, very much like, you know, menu du jour. Um, that's not necessarily going for the classics. And so it's interesting to see. Yeah. So I think design has really become 
design has really become one of the great distinguishing factors for a lot of, since you, you know, in Paris, it's harder to go really big the way that London and New York investors might be able to invest in really big projects. Um, within the Paris city limits, you can't go huge. So, so that's where like a lot of these younger designer brands have been, uh, have brought really an interesting take on it. Um, you know, again, like a, a really, you know, people who get a lot of press are people like Festen with like Hotel Rochechouart or Chateau Voltaire. Uh, for us, it was really interesting working for, with Bao because that's where it's sort of like Bao, having great clients like Bao gave us an opportunity to do very different concepts. Like Bleu Bao was really going for a much more bourgeois, uh, you know, cozy atmosphere. Uh, like a tea room almost. Exactly. Like a tea room and going for like a much more old school wallpaper. I mean, that we designed, you know, we commissioned bespoke based on a historic piece, but that was kind of like reinterpreted with like that blue that became the signature color versus Bao Express, which we just opened, which was like everything was like very bespoke design, had a much more 70s Hong Kong, much more pop vibe to it. So it's interesting that you know, being sensitive to also the neighborhoods in Paris and that, you know, uh, it might not be necessarily quite of that neighborhood, but there's still something, you know, creating a story with the place, I think in Paris is really important. Um, so that's where, yeah, I mean, I guess when you say dated, I mean, I guess for me, the thing that was, uh, with Atelier Rameau, the team actually, um, the rest of my lovely partners actually had worked on something on Samaritaine, on the appartement privé, on the appartement at Samaritaine. And the site is just so spectacular. I mean, that's the thing with Paris. It's like you get these sites that are just so amazing. So it's hard not to do the, your homework and do your research on really like how do you keep that conversation, that narrative, the story going with the the the, the architecture, the story of the place. And that's where the, my three partners were brought in to actually bring vintage pieces across the Samaritan, also the retail areas. But, you know, for me, Cheval Blanc, it's an interesting case of amazing, amazing service, amazing food, breathtaking, uh, view. But for me, that's where the interiors has really been branded for an international clientele. And I think for compared to what, you know, local Paris designers are, the fantastic talent we have in Paris, that's a bit of a shame because, you know, it's a big name that is known for doing a lot of LVMH places, but <laughs> sorry. Right. Well, and I, I'm so glad. I mean, yeah, I'm glad you said it because I interviewed him, Peter Marino, for a story. And I, you know, he, he has an explanation for the decisions, the, the design decisions. And obviously, um, the chairman himself, Bernard Arnault, is a, an art collector. And so that informs, you know, a lot of the style choices. Um, but yeah, I, it feels very corporate to me. It feels sort of like it could, it could just be an LVMH office. Um, the rooms are comfortable and beautiful. I actually think the, the, the guest rooms are the, the standout mm. for me. Um, to each their own. It's clearly not having any difficulty uh, bringing in, a certain well-heeled traveler. Um, and obviously, as you said, the food experiences are really, are really something. So, you know, and they have the best pastry chef basically working in Paris. So it's really hard, uh, who is Ma uh, Maxime Frédéric, um, because I know someone will ask. Um, so, you know, but it is, it is from a decorative standpoint, I think I was, I was one of the few writers to kind of say out loud that I was, <laughs> 
under I don't know if no, underwhelmed I mean, I is was the underwhelmed. word or just sort of like right take it or taken aback I don't know but you know and then you compare that to like the work of Alina Smardaman at the Hotel de Crillon and it's just an incredible sense of place and story and and digging into all of the the symbolism of different objects I mean everything is just incredibly researched and and sourced and so I don't know for me it's like night and day but that's why we have a gazillion hotels and people can choose but anyway before we go you just mentioned uh, Bao Express, which is one uh, one place that uh, people coming to Paris can get a sense of your your most recent work. Is there anything else that's coming up, or that you know we might see from you? So in the coming yeah, there's year? a few th- there's a few things on the work, but that I've not started on site. So yeah, I mean, I feel for me the the most iconic ones were Hoxton Paris, So House Paris, and the last of Bleu Bao and Bao Express. Um, so it's been interesting. Yeah, on the restaurant scene, there's a few things that, but. Your work on site has not started, but I think, I think our great strength as a team at Atelier Rameau and the thing I love, um, and I think those are the type of clients have, that have come reaching out to us are really building great stories that, you know, you know, even like in both ways be really anchored in Paris, not lose touch of where we are. And I grew up in Paris and it's a city I love in so many ways and in, all the nooks and crannies it has, but, you know, it doesn't prevent you from, uh, you know, giving you an escape onto other cultures, other foods. And so I think that's, I think the clients that have come reached, reaching out to us because, um, it's trying to find that mix of sort of, uh, the sense of, I would say uh, the French word evasion, I guess escape is the best place of sort of taking you to other foods, other cultures, um, in these, Parisian locations with a lot of character. Well, you're you're certainly off to a, an amazing start in Paris. Those are already pretty substantial projects. So people will just have to follow you and, you know, follow me <laughs> for the updates that I will share about your work. Tala, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Lindsay. It's been such a treat. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening, as always. If you're streaming this on Spotify, be sure to check out a little poll that awaits you pertaining to this discussion. Just scroll down on the episode page within the app and vote. And if you enjoy the show, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with a friend, and pick up the books that inspired it, The New Paris and The New Parisienne. Until next time, à bientôt.